We are in the midst of a series of passages where Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples exactly who he is so that they might in turn put their faith in him. And this is a time that is away from the crowds. This is a much more intimate setting with just the 12 because Jesus is discipling them in their faith. Now, they do have faith. They've been following Jesus for quite some time now. But it is one thing to believe in Jesus when things are smooth and his power is so obvious in his healings and his authority so apparent in his preaching and there are crowds and popularity and pretty much everyone is viewing Jesus as some kind of celebrity figure and they are part of his entourage and everyone wants to be near to them. It's one thing to believe and to have faith in Jesus when things seem to be going all good. But it is Altogether a different kind of thing to believe in the midst of adversity, which is what Jesus had just led these men through. In the middle of the sea, in the dark of night, with the winds and the waves beating upon the only thing that seems to be keeping you alive, and even that boat is filling up with water. While the very one you left all to follow appears to be utterly indifferent and fast asleep, in those very moments, it's much easier to see ourselves for who we really are and to lose heart, and to lose hope, and to abandon trust, and to focus only on the immediate, and this thought of dying, than to look to Jesus, who is in the same boat with you the entire time. It's easy to focus on the immediate and lose sense of that transcendent. But this is why Jesus brings his followers through adversity and through a storm, to bring them through this time so that they might have an opportunity to know Jesus in ways that calm waters could not give to them. The one in which, by a single phrase of a single sentence, can rebuke the wind and the waves to show his followers exactly who is in their boat with them. And the Son of God and God himself demonstrates his authority over physical creation, an authority that only the creator himself could ever have, that he can still a storm with his voice and silence the wind with his word. And his main priority in his people is their faith. Know who I am. Know who's in the same boat with you so that you can trust in me because you're not gonna be able to live the life that I'm calling you to live otherwise. And so Jesus is teaching them about himself so that they might put their trust in him. This is Christology so that we can live lives of discipleship. And in our text, we come to a second miracle, which is the second of four miracles that Luke gives to us in succession, each one of them contributing to the larger picture, piece by piece to the mosaic of who it is that they are following. We read in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. 
Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. These followers of Jesus had just been through the night of their lives and during a massive storm where they thought that this was their last sail. And you might guess that coming to shore, they'd be kissing that ground of the beach with the joy of finally being on dry land again. But this is a shore that they would never go to on their own. This is foreign land, Gentile land amongst pig farms, which no religious Jewish person would ever want to come to. They are in the place of graveyards and are confronted by thousands of demons and a crazy naked man who is not in his right mind at all. This is where Jesus brings them right after the storm. And there are two things that I want you to notice in these verses. First, one of the most tragic cases of satanic influence that we have in all of the Bible. One in which that we have no parallel of such an obviously outward evidence of a supernatural torture indicative of this intense and inward demonic activity. And with it, secondly, the account of the absolute and instantaneous authority of Jesus over even the most satanic of powers. But first, a man with a tragedy for a life. I don't think there is another person like this in all of the scriptures. We know not his name. We know that he used to live in the city, but something had changed in his life. He has demons, plural, which had altered everything. Legion is their name, which is more of a military term than it is a name, for a legion would be between five and 6,000 organized and trained soldiers, the largest troop within the Roman army, which had been so effective in conquering the nations and extending Roman rule, which is likely a pointer to the kind of force that resides within this person, that when asked of his name, the name his mom and dad gave to him doesn't even register with them because he is more characterized by this occupying evil within. And this man is banished from the city in which he used to live, separated from his family and his friends who used to form his community. He doesn't live in a home. He lives in a cemetery, which in ancient Palestine would be caves cut out of the limestone rock in the furthest places from normal civilization. This man is literally living in the land of the dead, and he no longer wears any clothing, and you can imagine the shame that comes from merely that. But in addition to this, the book of Mark lets us know that he would often scream night and day and beat himself or cut himself with stones, and so he is not getting any kind of sleep. One of our kids woke up three nights ago in the middle of the night, bad dream, and I had to lay down next to him for about an hour to calm him down to get him back to sleep. It wrecked me for the next day. This man would awaken from his own screams, not someone else's. He's not sleeping through any night. He's always exhausted, and he feels a constant pain from self-harm. It's one thing to be hurt by somebody else. It's entirely another thing to be beaten and cut by your very own hands. And it seems that the people of the city who used to be this man's neighbor, they've tried to help, whether for his own good or their own good, they've tried to bind him in chains and in shackles and keep watch and keep guard over him as he was a danger to anyone who would come near to him and a danger to himself. But supernaturally, possessed by demons in increasing fashion, he would break the shackles and tear the chains apart. Maybe at one time they had worked before, but not anymore. And these same demons would drive him further away 
from the people and further away from civilization and into the desert. And so we have self-harm, we have a repulsion away from any kind of human community, and we have an obvious failure of all their attempts at recovery. These broken handcuffs, so to speak, represent all human effort and all the city means to help them, and nothing has worked out at all, but every effort has been exhausted, and he has been categorized as hopeless and helpless, relegated to a place where he could be forgotten, which I'm sure the people did not mind because the further he is away from us, the better it is for us, which is what we can all so often do. If we can't solve our problem, we just push it into a corner and kind of move on with the rest of our lives. And so right away, we are introduced to a bleeding, naked, screaming mess of a man with supernatural strength, pushed to the very fringes of society and making his home in a place where no one wants to be, written off and trapped into his own living hell which serves as a vivid picture of what the devil would like to do to any of us if he were able to and unrestrained. Again, I cannot think of a single parallel in all of the Bible or an equivalent case of human wretchedness as in this case of the Gerasenes demoniac. But alongside of this, we also have an account of Jesus' absolute and instantaneous authority over even the most demonic of powers. Even the strongest and most destructive of satanic forces, they have to rush to Jesus and confess who he is. And I don't know why it is that there are so many uh, accounts of demon possessions only within the gospel and not so much in the rest of the Bible. You can skim through hundreds of pages and not find even one, and then you hit the beginning of the New Testament, and it seems like it's on every other page. And then after the time of Jesus, we don't find much at all again. I don't know why it is that when Jesus arrives, all of a sudden, outward demonic activity kicks up thousands of notches rather than the subtlety that we are used to. Perhaps they have to expose themselves in the presence of the Son of God. Or maybe they're accumulating all their forces to confront him at this moment of time and to no avail. I'm not entirely sure, but in our text, the focus is not on why, but on how they must respond to Jesus. It's like they're compelled to him even though they cannot stand him. And they have to recognize him whether they like it or not. And while the rest of us, and surely these 12 men, would be fearful of this naked, chain-breaking man, any of us, we'd be fearful of him. This man, however, is the fearful one, and he is fearful of Jesus. For right when he sees Jesus, he falls down to his knees, maybe even on his face, not as an act of worship, but as an act of utter dread. Verse 28, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. These demons immediately recognized Jesus' authority over them and his identity as the Son of God. And what we're seeing here is not this good versus evil battle and struggle as if the two sides are almost evenly matched. No, the legion of the most evil kind of destructive forces, they tremble in the Son of God's presence and they beg him not to be tormented and thrown into the abyss, which is a place of torment in Revelation chapter 20. They know they're doomed. It's just a matter of when. 
the most uncontrollable and uncontainable legion of demons, they know, they know that they are at the mercy of Jesus. That one mightier than themselves is here on the shore, and whether they like it or not, they have to run to him, they have to fall down before him and beg of him, have mercy on us. And this picture that Luke is putting together of who Jesus is, this series of passages to form a fuller image of his supremacy and his authority, it's important to see in this succession. His followers had just been through the most fearful and uncontrollable storm, and they witnessed the power and the authority of the one they follow over the storm. And here they're confronted with the most fearful and uncontrollable man, and there again they witness the power and the authority of the one they follow over even a man like this. Jesus has supremacy over the most violent of the natural realm, and Jesus has supremacy over the most violent of the supernatural realm, which means that we can trust in him in the face of anything and have faith in him in the face of absolutely everything. Matthew Henry says, oh, what a comfort is this to the Lord's people, that all the powers of darkness are under the check and control of the Lord Jesus. He has them all in a chain. He can send them to their own place when he pleases. Charles Spurgeon, in the presence of man, Satan is great and strong and crafty, but in the presence of the Christ of God, he shrinks into utter insignificance Dale Ralph Davis talks about this submission to the sovereign they so intensely despise, but they have to confess the truth of his supremacy. This leaves us in no doubt about how the so-called cosmic conflict will play out. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. Now, why does Jesus allow this legion to go into the pigs? I'm not sure, and the text does not say, but the pigs do give to us at least a visual that within a moment we see exactly what kind of forces were contained within the soul of this man when thousands of them rush immediately to their demise, stampeding to destroy themselves. We get a graphic picture of the kind of evil that has been tormenting this poor man for who knows how long. These pigs are a testimony to exactly what was within him and what is now no longer within him because of the authority of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And so we have in these verses an unparalleled account of demonic oppression and alongside of it an unparalleled authority of Jesus over even the most evil and satanic of forces. But what is equally important in our passage is not only the demonstration of this identity of Jesus, but also the different kinds of responses to Jesus, whether it be faith or a lack thereof. Look with me in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The first response that we see here to Jesus' powerful miracle is get out of here, Jesus. The people witnessed this amazing transformation, uh, and they're looking at this man now in his right mind, clothed and sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
and they're somehow more afraid of that than how things used to be. And there can be no denying the facts of what just happened. And we could do nothing for this man. We tried everything. And then we had to relegate him far away from us and bind him with chains and shackles because we didn't know how to deal with his issue. And there are now thousands of pigs floating in the sea, which proves that this was not some mere psychological issue. I mean, the broken chains have proven already that this is not some mere psychological issue. And while pig corpses littering that shoreline is a horrific sight, the text is clear that the sight that horrifies the people of this city most is not those dead bodies. What horrifies the people most is a clothed man in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. This is what makes them most afraid. And just like the disciples had once been in this fearful storm until it was stilled, and then they became more fearful in awe of the stiller of that storm. So it is the citizens of the city had been once fearful of this man until he was stilled. And then they became more fearful of the stiller of that man because it meant that something more powerful than legion and someone more mighty than the devil is right here in our midst. And they could deal with legion in a sense. We can send the man away to the cemetery, bind him up and keep him out of the picture and move on with our day. But they cannot deal with Jesus. He's in a completely different kind of category. You know, this phenomenon has been called the trauma of holiness, which describes the feeling that people have when they come to a realization that God is in their midst. And for some people, this brings about faith. But for others, it can bring about a harsh rejection. Because if the power of Christ has changed a man like that, what then is he going to do to me? And it seems as if they are afraid here that Jesus is going to alter things about their lives as well if he is going to stick around any longer. And they don't want that kind of change. And this can often be the case with the people we know as well. Now, sometimes we think, for the ones we love especially, who refuse Jesus continually, if they were just able to see one undeniable miracle one strong evidence of Jesus' supremacy, proof of the supernatural, then, then, then they would believe. But over and over, again and again, it is simply not the case within the Gospels. People can see and witness mighty and undeniable transformations and be unmoved. And people today can witness mighty and undeniable transformations of lives in conversion and still not want the same for us. For themselves. John 3:19, which comes right after John 3:16. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People love their lives without God. They don't always want a life change. They often like things the way that they are, and they'd rather keep their lives than have their Savior. And in more ways than one, Jesus just simply costs too much. John MacArthur, he says, as powerful as that miracle is, the power of depravity is stronger. And here we have it that the people are more comfortable with sin than they are with holiness. They're more familiar with the devil then they are the Son of God, and they feel more at ease with the demoniac as their neighbor 
than with Jesus Christ in their midst. You know, sometimes it is that people would rather have things the way that they are. At least it's predictable. At least it doesn't challenge the way that I'm living. At least it's comfortable. And the citizens of this city, they unanimously want Jesus to go away. And in the tragedy of tragedies, after a powerful and undeniable demonstration of his lordship and saving power, Jesus once again faces rejection. And the saddest part of the text, I think, is that Jesus honors this rejection and that he does go away from them. You know, some of us in this room are the only believers in our families, perhaps the only Christian in our friend groups outside of this church. And some have already witnessed an enormous and even drastic change in your life because you have come to know Jesus and because you are sitting at his feet and finally in your right mind and people notice that change and perhaps people do not like the change. And then when you try and tell them I'm different, I've been born again because the Son of God has loved me and he has given himself up for me or whatever vernacular you like to use, they don't want to hear it. And they may even go as far as to tell you, I wish the old you were back. I liked him a lot better. I wish this new you were gone. But they cannot deny the change. And sometimes it is that they are no longer drawn to you, nor are they interested in the power of Christ that brought such a change in you. And they feel alienated because you love the Lord and you now love his church and read his word and worship him with your life and the things that you used to live for, you don't live for them anymore. And instead of being open to the person who has changed everything about you, they find it much more comfortable for their own lives to just send this Jesus far away from them. And I want to encourage you that if this is happening, it is not always a bad thing because it means a lot of the change in your life is utterly undeniable. Now, if they flee from us because we've become obnoxious in person and even worse, on our social media, well, that is entirely a different thing. We're not called to be obnoxious and combative, but if we are merely in our right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus... And the people around us do not like the change. I think one of the worst things that we could ever do is try and camouflage that change to accommodate them and make them feel comfortable. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be what the world wants us to be. We can only be what Jesus Christ has called us to be. And some will ask us to leave because they do not want Jesus to be anywhere near them. Or they will act offended and distance themselves from us, but we must still believe the truth that we have heard and still call others to do the same. And so we have in these verses a, a tragic response to Jesus. If they had only let him stay with them, I mean, how many of them could have been saved forever? How many of them could be put into their right minds and find the joy that they were created to enjoy of sitting at the Savior's feet, but they all together as one voice reject him? But there's another response to Jesus, which is not tragic at all. Look with me in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. After experiencing salvation, this man begs to be with Jesus. And I think that's the right response to our Savior. Now think about it. I'm sure 
that there's family who hasn't seen this man in his right mind for years. There are friends who he hasn't gotten to enjoy for years. Perhaps even children he hasn't hugged for years. With strongest desire of this man's heart in response to Jesus' saving work is, let me be with you, Jesus. If you leave, let me leave too. If you go, let me go with you. I'll cross any sea to wherever you are. I don't want to go a day without you, and I can leave anything behind. I can leave anyone behind if it means that I can be with you, Jesus. Isn't that the cry of every person who's been rescued by Jesus? Salvation is not just about getting out of hell and recognizing Jesus so that we avoid the judgment. That's demonic recognition. That's what Legion does in our text. Fall down before Jesus. Beg Jesus. Don't send us to hell. If this is the only reason why you confess Christ to avoid hell, then you only know Christ like the demons know Christ, which is not savingly at all. This man is utterly different. I want to be with you, Jesus. And this, again, is a cry of every true Christian. I want to be with you wherever you are. That's where I want to be. But Jesus has instead other plans for him. And he calls on this man to become a missionary sent to the very ones who have already rejected Jesus. And notice how his shameful past does not disqualify him from becoming a missionary. His crazy demonic past only serves to accent the power of Jesus that much more. And Jesus gives to the city, even though they had already rejected him initially, Jesus gives to them this transformed man to be a standing witness and a testament to Jesus' saving power, and everyone who would see him and hear him day to day would know something undeniably powerful had happened to this man. Brothers and sisters, one of our greatest apologetics for the gospel and the most beautiful adornments to the good news of Jesus Christ is our own very transformed life and how different we have become to what we once were because of what Jesus had done for us. And if we would reflect upon salvation more and more, and reflect upon God's power more and more, I think we'd be more and more willing to talk about Jesus to the very people God has placed around us. And so Jesus says to him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And what does this man do? He obeys the Jesus he loves. He goes away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He spreads the word indiscriminately. He didn't get to go with Jesus. But that doesn't make him doubt Jesus at all. You know, sometimes God's plans for us are not what we would first choose for ourselves. But he knows better than we know where it is and in what way that we can glorify God in this very short life that we have. He doesn't call all of us to have 100 Christian friends and a fully Christian family and a country club of a church surrounded by the most Christian-friendly laws and Christian-friendly politics. He may call you to be in a very small minority and amongst the people who beg for Jesus to leave like the demons beg for Jesus to leave them alone and the city begs Jesus to leave them alone as well. But he's still with you. 
And he has still called you to proclaim throughout your city just how much Jesus Christ has done for you. And perhaps in your small groups later this week, you can talk to each other about who it is in particular that God may be asking you to tell them about how much God has done for you. Now, this text does not tell us how demon possession happens. We, we're not given any details of that process. This text does not tell us uh, about why it happens. The text does not tell us about who are the kinds of people this might happen to. This text does not tell us why demons want to go into animals or answer the questions, can they regularly inhabit animals? Our passage doesn't explain any of this. It just narrates what happens in this account. The main point here is not any of that. The main point is a demonstration of the authority of Jesus Christ so that we might trust in him when we are confronted with the worst kinds of evil in this world, that we do not have to be afraid. The world is an evil place. You might not see demon possession, but you do see people chanting for the death of unborn babies. This world is an evil place. It's not always friendly to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And I do believe that that evil is going to get much stronger in the next several years and decades. But that doesn't mean we ever have to fear, brothers and sisters. We often look at the storm. We often look at those influenced by demons. When we should be first looking at the Christ over the storm and the Christ supreme over all kinds of evil, that if he brings us through any kind of experience that might rattle our cages, we need not fear, for he is with us. And brothers and sisters, the church never need fear. Christ will build his church, and the gates of Hades will never overtake it. We do not have to be afraid. But I also think this passage is a parable and a picture of our own salvation as believers. You know, this man is, is super interesting, to say the least. In one sense, uh, he's so powerful. He's so strong. Uh, no one and nothing can bind him. And so in a very narrow sense, he, he's, he's the freest man in the country. I can destroy any kind of restraint off of me. I don't have to do what anyone else tells me to do. And yet at the same time, he's in the deepest kind of slavery because he can't free himself from the bondage within him. Every human effort that, that was used to control his behavior could only control him for a momentary time on the outside. It could never change his inner person. And, and I think this is a parable and a picture of us all, really. Apart from God, before we became believers, we think we're so free. And I make my own way. I choose my own choices. I determine my own destiny. And no one and nothing could tell me otherwise. I can choose my own gender. I choose who I sleep with, when I want to, and I throw off any fetters of any kind of religion and any kind of God that tries to limit my behavior. I'm a totally free person. And then ironically, we find ourselves enslaved within our hearts to things like lust, to materialism, the hunger for more and more and greed to the chains of what people think about us and the fear of man, to even what our body looks like. And in this bondage, we hurt other people. And we hurt ourselves in serving them. And we find that we are not as free as we really think that we are. But this slavery puts us into a really miserable condition, self-destruction of sorts. Worse than any kind of demon is the slavery to our own simple hearts. It's worse 
the Bible's very clear that we were all at one point hopeless and helpless causes. Romans 6.20 tells us that we were all once slaves to sin. We were only free in regards to righteousness. And in a very real sense, all of us were an unclean spirit. Ephesians 2.2, 2, we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. We walked in his path. Who was influential over us? It's not that we were morally and spiritually neutral. We were all walking in the same direction as he, following the prince of the power of the air, whether it's obvious like this man or more subtle like most of us, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The influence of the demonic is not always as obvious as it is in these verses, but Jesus was sent to seek and save the lost. And if you zoom out a bit in this narrative, Jesus leaves Galilee. Let's get in a boat and go to the other side. And he takes his disciples through this life-threatening storm in the dark of night, only to come onto the shore of Gentile land, uh, full of hard hearts and rejectors of the Son of God. But Jesus makes this entire trip and endures all of this hassle to save just the one person who everyone has already written off. Nowhere in this text is the word love mentioned, but how else do you describe something like this? To cross the entire storm and sea to save the one, or to come from heaven to earth to save the lost. This is a story of great love for the most evil, and this is a parable and the picture of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we can continue to have hope for the people around us that no one is hopeless and no one is helpless. The reason why we categorize no one as hopelessly lost is because we were all once hopelessly very lost. But we have the message that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the very lost. And would it be that you would go and tell the world just how much Jesus has done for us? Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Uh, you sent him from heaven to earth to live the life none of us have lived, to die the death that we each deserve upon that cross, to absorb the wrath that our sin has earned, to die a death and yet he defeats that death in the resurrection. You raised him from the grave to prove that his sacrifice on our behalf has been accepted. You've broken the bonds of sin and death. And he ascends, Jesus does, to your right hand to intercede for his church. Even now, there's nothing we have done to deserve this kind of love. And yet you lavish your love upon us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May it be that our church in our community, that the the apple of our eye and the badge we wear on our sleeve would be of the mighty things that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, that everyone would know that our lives are different now because of your love for us, which causes us to love you in return. Would you please, God, make us bright light and salty salt in this darkened world? with no preservation. And God, please, please, please use our short lives on this earth to bring a lot of people to you and give you the glory and praise which is due to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.